From the Journeys of Belonging to Blackness Digital Media Project, I'm India Lorik Wilmot, and you're listening to the podcast, Talking Journeys of Belonging to Blackness. Joining us today is Victorious de Costa. He is a film producer and documentarian, music promoter, social justice advocate, and community educator. A first-generation Brooklynite of South and Central American heritage, specifically from Panama and Guyana, Victorious de Costa has dedicated his life to using art and music as a means for providing education and social services to youth and communities of color locally, nationally, and abroad. A graduate of Morehouse College, Victorious's postgraduate employment as a DJ and record promoter in Atlanta during the mid-1990s not only introduced him to the music industry, but also the important need to use various modes of entertainment, such as film, to tell stories of African-descended people. Most recently, Victorious's first full-length documentary called Digging for Weldon Irvine, a pioneer of jazz fusion, focuses on joint paradigms of artist identity and mental wellness. The film, which debuted in November 2019 at the Big Apple Film Festival in New York City, features Layla Hathaway, Bobito Garcia, Q-Tip, Jessica Caremore, and many others. In addition, Victorious is also the producer of Storm Over Brooklyn, The Yusef Hawkins Story, a documentary greenlit by HBO for an early 2020 release. Victorious stays busy with a myriad of film and TV projects in his docket, including a pre-production of an authorized documentary about the legendary Fortop, as well as a new TV drama, which is currently in development called L.A. Gold Rush. Victorious continues to dedicate his stewardship to and passion for community through love and revolutionary art. Thank you so much for taking time out of your extremely busy schedule to share a bit about your journey with our listeners. Uh, I'm, I'm so honored. One, call to adventure. So what's interesting about your work is that in addition to your documentary work and the various television projects you're engaged in, you still find the time to engage in social justice advocacy and community education. So based in New York City, for instance, you were engaged in an educational program for inmates at Rikers Island Jail that offered yes. ESL, GED, and college prep courses? Right, and computer literacy. Yeah, that was under uh, the late Janet Cerro. Janet Cerro was a great woman in New York. She was a member of the New York uh, Black Panther Party, and she um, worked at uh, CUNY, right? worked at CUNY Research Foundation at LaGuardia College, and she hired me. She also is uh, the mother of one of my best friends, Salah Cerro. And she had me up in Rikers Island, had me up in Rikers Island, and I learned a whole lot. I, I learned that there really isn't that much of a difference between myself and some of the uh, the people that I met in there. Mm. And, and I learned that I didn't need I didn't need to be older than someone in order to effect change with someone. Yeah, great experience, great experience. They didn't want me in there. I, I actually uh, 
they, they kind of forced me out, but I rocked the boat a little bit. And um, as some of the CEOs would say that he looks like one of the inmates, so they didn't like that, you know, about me. Yeah, so I left. I wish I didn't leave, though, but I left. But it stuck with me. And that, and that's a powerful experience. And I'm sure you made quite a positive impression on those who were incarcerated and held there. And I think there's some power in being able to see yourself reflected in those that are there to help you and, and to edify you, yeah. even in that particular circumstance? I saw a lot. I saw a lot in there. I saw a lot of illiteracy that made me sad. I remember people like twice my age just really just couldn't, couldn't really read or write on any level. Um, but it's interesting, like nowadays, this, this was uh, maybe almost, oh gosh, almost 20 years ago. Like there are people that I see, some of the gentlemen that I see on the street and you can't tell them that I wasn't in prison with them. Like they, cause I guess I didn't have a uniform. I might not have had ID badge. Some people do think that I was actually uh, incarcerated with them. I was not, but it's, uh, it's funny. And that they identified with you still. And maybe yeah. there's something about that, right? Being literally on the inside, but then because there are certain shared experiences, that kind of commonality helped to bond folk. In terms of your community engagement and activism, you also provided material support to the ACLU's campaign against racial profiling. And um, correct mm-hmm. me if I'm wrong, but did you facilitate a workshop, People, Police, and Protocol? Yes, so that's two different things, right? So uh, with the ACLU, and you're just going to notice that a lot of the things you're mentioning, there's just a time span that starts in the 90s to now because I didn't just pop up. Um, so I think that was maybe about 04, 05. I was uh, managing and DJing for a rap group called A-Likes. A-Likes were part of a collective that uh, was known as the People's Army, also uh, known as the RBG. And RBG then stood for... Uh, revolutionary but gangster was made popular by the rap group Dead Press. So that that was the uh, the whole collective. You know what's known as RBG now is something totally um, far removed from what we were doing. Um, the music was very pro liberation, pro people, and we saw that you know to be pro all those things, we were not anti police, but we felt and you know the, the evidence would say that the police were anti us, and so we wanted to outfit the people with education on how to deal with uh, the police safely and to have dignity at the same time. And the group had a song called Protocol, which was all about that. And our flyer or our postcard had like the album cover. And then in the back, it was what I would call the nowadays generic 10 things like, oh, you have a right to remain silent or don't let them in the trunk. You know, this is basically very, very rigid 10 point thing that we want people to know that they have the right to do, right not to do. And so the ACLU, specifically King Downing, who was heading up um, a program, the um, this anti-stop and frisk mm-hmm. you know, program, ACLU, he had the group travel with him to different places like Kentucky and throughout New York to speak to audiences, mostly students, mostly teenagers, about their rights. And so we would do a show, then we do a panel. And so that's one of the ways that, that we uh, helped out with that. And then later on, I was trained to do my own workshop. And this workshop, and this is later on, maybe five, six years ago, this workshop was more personalized, right? Because you can't really give someone a list of things and say, carry this on you and you do that. It's going to work out fine for you, no matter where you are, no matter what county you're in, no matter what state you're in. And so the workshop changes 
based upon the laws in, in your town, right? So if you're in Vegas, you might have to produce ID even though you're not driving. If you are, like I've done private schools, right? So if you are a 15-year-old white female teenager, the things that, the ways that, that you can interact with the police in support of someone or in defense of yourself is different than what I would tell a 21-year-old black young man, right. right? And so depending on the experience you have with the police and depending on your demographic, the workshop changes. So the first thing we ask all around the table is who here has had any experience with the police, whether it be positive or negative, we go around, kind of see what, you know, what everyone is, um, what, they've, what they've gone through. And then I frame it around that, you know, we do some role playing. We have a quiz, true and false. Some people think that the police can't do certain things, right? Can't is a very strong word. And so what we want to do is we reduce that. Well, we just obliterate it, actually. We say, you know what? Take can't out your vocabulary with the police, right? What is lawful and what they can do. And so we say that the police, they are the law in that moment, right? And so they may not be legally permitted to do some things, but they can do what they want to do. Unless, right. you, stop, unless you stop them, which is a whole nother workshop. You know, you stay, you, stay, you stay behind. We'll talk about, you know, what you can do to defend yourself against certain things. And uh, we just really just shake a lot of myths, like the myth that a police officer has to tell you that they're a police officer if you ask them. That's something, a myth that's, that's currently going on from TV, like from 21 Jump Street. We let you know there's like a delineation between um, a search and a terry pat, right? So terry pat means a police officer can pat you down to make sure that you don't have, you know, an obvious weapon. People think to this day that that is illegal. It is not illegal because... The concept is that the officer has to be safe in talking to you. People think that that's a search, not a search, right? What they cannot do is go in your pockets. They can't go inside of your hat. No, that's a search, right? That's something that, that they, they can't do without um, probable cause or without consent, right? But if you don't know that, if they're like patting you down, you can't do that. You know, get off of me. And then then you have an incident. And sometimes you have an incident anyway. You could be eating a bowl of ice cream in your house and have an incident, you know, apparently, right? You know, when you are on the street, it is good to know that if you do uh, plan on uh, either complying or crossing the line in regards to interaction with the police, you should know what the what your rights are. And, and we say that you might not be able to beat the ride, right, in that car, but you might be able to beat the rap. You're dealing with a beast, right? So you don't really know how things are going to happen. No, but I, I let people know that it, none of this is like a, a straightforward postcard that we had 15 years ago. So, so hopefully across the nation that a lot of these programs that do do know your rights do become more personalized. These experiences where you've been engaged with organizations like the ACLU, but then also how your own lived experiences help to inform the content for these workshops, right. I think provides you with Interesting opportunities to speak both at public and independent schools across New York City and different places, right. and to be able to teach students various methods of civic engagement and social protest, both safely and effectively. And I think it's, you know, as a person who also facilitates different types of workshops, it's always useful when you have the person who's facilitating and even organizing the workshops that they understand that, particularly when you're giving people different kinds of strategies to employ in real time that those strategies are only as good as the context in which you understand those strategies to be employed within. Yes. Right? I had the pleasure of watching your first full-length documentary, Digging for Weldon Irvine, after it premiered at the Big Apple Film Festival in November. And in addition to learning 
about and developing really a deeper appreciation of the man behind the music, right? Weldon Irvine, and how he was a mentor, teacher, and influencer of many generations of jazz and popular musicians of today. And even to be reminded of his work with Nina Simone and him co-authoring Young, Gifted, and Black. I was like, oh yeah, that's awesome. Um, And the ways his artistry and thinking was outside of the box and inspired those iconic chords sampled in the beginning of a Tribe Called Quest's award tour. I was like, whoa, that makes sense. Amongst many other contemporary songs. I think for me, your documentary showed us an aspect of Weldon Irvine's life, the plight of being a creative, being Black, and the mental, emotional, and economic efforts that are often required in order to take up space and be respected in spaces for, you know, one's gifts and contributions. Your documentary, too, I think is about the ways capturing one's name and calling one's name is a way to cement one's place and one's narrative in history so that it's never lost. Thank you. I like to use that little tidbit of calling one's name and then cementing this one. I I like that. When we're talking about the name, Mm -hmm. I want you to tell our listeners about your name. So what's the significance behind your name, Victorious? Okay. So Victorious, it it is not a name I was uh, born with. Victorious is a name that I began to earn at 18 years old. I hadn't figured out what I wanted to do in life. And whenever People would ask me up to that point from, you know, from being a child, like 12 or so to 18, it would change a bit based upon what it took. Right. So I wanted to be a lawyer, you know, how much school, whatever, you know, I wanted to be a lot of different things. And so at 18, got to Morehouse and my major was business administration. And in order to be a business major, to, to take business courses, you have to have a certain level of math. It wasn't working for me. You know, I, I didn't I didn't pass math out at all really in college maybe once so I had to shift right mm-hmm. so I shifted, shifted to sociology and then it's like okay what am I going to do and then it's you know what I just want to be successful right I just want to be victorious and and my answer to that question what do you want to do when you grow up I just want to be victorious and so victorious just really became a challenge a goal you know a moniker a burden at sometimes a member of the five percent nation and the five percent sometimes you, you'll take a name that places your honorable name or your given name and so victorious is the one that i eventually chose and to be clear you know my given name it is an african name it's a great african name but that is another name that i i do answer to but professionally victorious it wasn't any other dj victorious and uh i i sometimes i i get mad that i decided to use you know my real name as my dj name because people thought that it was a dj thing i just want to be victorious no matter what it is i don't i don't want to be bound to any particular life path you know film was a new dream now that i've reached heights it's like okay well i can get money doing film but you know i have a, another dream i don't want to get bogged down into being a filmmaker you want the path to provide you with many different kinds of opportunities and options well, i want to make the opportunities and options yeah I want, to, I want to be human. I want to live. And, and be victorious, right? So it's more than just surviving. It's thriving and it's experiencing victory along the way. Which is just me achieving my goal, whatever my goal is. You know, I used to be a quitter. My name doesn't allow me to quit. If you think back to your childhood growing up, what, what motivated you or inspired you to 
do the kinds of things that you're doing now? So with film, I had in my journal from middle school, I wrote a couple of scripts. I wrote a couple of, of legal dramas based upon the mafia, which does not exist. So that was my earliest memory. And then you have, in I think eighth grade, this fella named Joe Paradise came to my school and he did a workshop and he taught us how to make our own film. We got some uh, cameras from the AV room and we made our own little short film. And then it just disappeared. It wasn't until high school where I wanted to be an artist um, in college where I wanted to be a manager in A&R and became a DJ. These were really just my artistic expressions, you know, but as far as doing art for a living, I was taught about Fred Hampton a little bit too early. Knowing his age and knowing what he did at that age, you know, I was, I was hooked. I had a lot of conflict and contradictions in my life, but I always saw that as a model, what a young man could be. And also, you know, my my mother, like she'd been to Cuba like a couple of times in, in the 70s and they were tapping her phone and she and she was involved in maybe some building takeovers, you know, at Mecca Everest College in Brooklyn. So I had a little something in me, but I also had a lot of negative experiences with the police as, as a child. And knowing that time is limited, I had to figure out, well, how could I do both? And what we say is that revolution needs resources. And so for me, music seemed to be the quickest way for me to get money so I can fund programs. And with film, natural progression for music is is film for a lot of us. The goal what do you mean by that? Well, from from editing, let's say I went to engineering school, you know, so for so editing, if I can edit on Pro Tools, which is an um, audio engineering program, I can do Adobe Premiere, which is a, a video program. Learning how, like song structure, it's the same principle as if you're structuring film or play. When you're doing music, you're going to have a video, you know, and you're an artist and you have this this picture of what the visual representation of the song should be, right? So all that is starting out in film. So you'll find people say from Ava DuVernay to, you know, to myself, you have to know a little bit of marketing. It's getting more open now for you know, the African people. But the whole thing was revolution needs resources. And no matter what revolution is to to you, you need some resources. It ain't going to be free. Do what I did the past four years. I would burn up in flames somehow. Well, it sounds to me you are a creative. As a creative, we're oftentimes called to do some really interesting and non-traditional kinds of things. And that you feel that you're called to do some of this community-based work and that film is a platform for, you know, through which you're able to do some of this work. Now that you're in the space of doing the kind of documentary work, were there particular programs that you used to watch growing up that you were like, wow, I just, there's something about not only the content, the script, but visual representation of you see yourself employing today. So the stories I've been telling since I started mm-hmm. were the Dignity for World Naveen, that's my first feature length film, right? But I, I've done five short films before that. There was a show called Survivor's Remorse that LeBron executive produced, and that made me want to write for television. But besides that, my father had a very big collection, hundreds of, of VHS tapes. In my 20s, I would go to a mega store and I, I would buy a DVD a night. And this is all before I'm thinking I'm, I'm going to be doing film. If you were uh, fortunate or unfortunate enough to date me, you know, we might, our first date might have been Virgin Megastore. I don't know. And I, I might have thought it was cool. Yeah, so, ah, right, you find me a movie. I found you a movie. And we'll, you know, I, movies has always, it's always been it. That's they, a they, terrible they like, first date. They, they liked it. Look, I, they like me. I got I got cute eyebrows. I don't see on a podcast. I'm sorry. Look. I'm like stuck. Okay, let's, you're, let's do it. You are stuck because your dates are about helping you find material to inspire you, <laughs> your work. That's 
selfish. Now, now we know, right? We, we, we didn't know that before, but now, now we do know. Watch the credits of my films because every woman that I dated. Uh, yeah, so I just always watch movies, but nothing really sticks out. Nothing really sticks out. I know that Kugler Fruitville Station really affected me mm-hmm. as a filmmaker when I was just starting because Fruitville Station, you knew what was going to happen at the end, but it was still a compelling story. And then I realized, well, wow, if you have a good story, it doesn't matter if you start, you know, if you know what happens at the end. Like, you can't really spoil a good movie, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so that helped me with that, but not the subject matter. Because I already was in that vein. I don't know why they're amazed that I do what I do and how I do what I do. I do it with no money and no time. But for me, it's life or death. Like, I don't see an option. I don't see what, what happens to me if I don't finish this film. Where am I going to be? What will I even be? Will I exist on this, on this plane, you know, if I don't bring this to the world? Why do you think that's important to you? Do you see that connected in terms of your motivation as an individual person to say, okay, this is me as victorious? Is it is it about you being a Black person, an African-descended, uh, Afro-Latino, a Caribbean-American? What role it, does those things play, if any? It comes from me being all of those things you mentioned uh, and being from the hood. I step out of my house is with a purpose. And that purpose is life or death. It's either survival, I'm going to come home today, tonight, or I'm leaving the house, I'm going to be self-destructive, destructive, really with suicide by proxy I was trying to commit, which I didn't realize at the time. Purpose for doing anything has always been, you're going to either live with this or you're going to die with this. I just use that energy and use that focus with the positive things that I do. Everything is intention. So if I'm dealing with dealing with work with the police, every situation is critical. And I, I've lost so many people in the hood because of my choices, right? Because you can have been from my block and I may have lost five people. You didn't lose nobody because you chose different friends or you chose different walks or whatever. So lost so many folk that one, I know that time is not promised. I think this year I don't feel that way, but I did last year. I'm on borrowed time, but like I wasn't supposed to be here. I felt guilty for being here. And all that just made me want to make sure that I don't play around with life. I don't play around with time. I don't play around with gifts. I don't waste any more talent. I have five friends, you know, two close ones that committed suicide, which did lead to why Weldon Irvine's story was compelling to me because I have friends that committed suicide. First was 19, you know, that was Lamar, you know, and then three, four years ago, my, my homegirl Kiko, you know, she jumped in front of a train, you know, so I mean, you know, but I, I ain't telling stories that, that aren't stories that I need to get out of me. I have gone to therapy since I was eight, but when I do create, it is uh, therapeutic to me because these are things that I want to get out of me. So you see you you see your own artist identity wrapped up into these other identities that you also possess in terms of being Afro-Latino, being a Black person, being African-descended, but then also being within the, the geospatial context of your neighborhood, or not zip code neighborhood, but of being from the hood, right. which you're talking about. Yeah. You had said something that was kind of interesting that I don't think I really understood. And you said, by being in certain places, you make a choice in terms of choosing yeah. to wake up and to choose to leave your home and the choices you make to pursue different kinds of activities. And, and then mm-hmm. you said, Said, I didn't realize that I was acting in a space of suicide by proxy. Right. I didn't really understand what you meant by that. Okay, so you know where I stay, right? And, and I would say even outside of the ghettos of hell, there are people who just take these these chances with their life, and they get what we would call props for that. Being this tough person, being this person that will run into the flame, you know, when everyone else is running away from the flame. I was one of those people, and but I also knew that I was suicidal. I, I didn't know that. I never connected the two, but I knew that if at eighteen, nineteen, I didn't gain a knowledge of myself and a purpose in 
life. I know that I would kill myself by 22, you know, or 23. I know, I know the songs that that stopped me from killing myself. You know, it's very clear in what years and what moments and all that because I battled with, with different things. You know, but I never really linked until some years ago. I was like, oh no, you weren't a tough guy. I predicted my death. You know, by the time I was 30, I had a relationship with a, with a great woman. I've had a few of those, and she asked me for a five year plan. So not only was I just like mad that she asked me to think about the future, but I, I was insulted that she thought that I would be alive in five years. Like now here's a kicker, right? Learning about Fred early, learning about a lot of people, freedom fighters. We thought that that martyrdom had to be suicide by proxy. You know, I, I, I thought that death was, was honorable and I thought that there's only one way to honorably die. I knew that suicide wasn't honorable. This all, is this all subconscious thought. I think that's interesting in the way in which you're being reflective in this moment and talking about how is it that you're coming to use your artistry in film and in TV and how the kinds of stories that resonate with you and what motivates you, they seem to be directly connected to your own mental health and well-being. That's probably why the Weldon Irvine story resonated with you. Here's this person who seemed highly motivated. He didn't want to teach, right? But he taught. He knew that he wanted to do something to make a difference and to put his artistry and his work out there for mass consumption because he knew that it can make a difference. And even though he taught children and maybe adult piano lessons or what have you, he was also grappling with his own mental well-being and his own health state. And maybe he engaged in certain activities. Your documentary talked about how he carried around this knife, this weapon, and how he sort of moved was almost like, yeah, let me challenge you on, you know, Mm -hmm. why don't you step to me? But there was something else that was happening. Right. It makes sense that I think those who might be creative, it's not surprising, also grapple with being em- empaths. See, being creative is one thing. And one thing that also why Weldon's story resonated with me, because all the things that in, in my bio and things that I've mentioned earlier in the interview, you know, I haven't gotten credit for it, right? Or my name is not exalted. And we do it for the art of it, but to not be like you said earlier have your name in the cement right for you not to be spoken of it wears down on you and another reason why Walden's story really spoke to me is like wow I never heard this guy before like why this guy wrote 500 songs and and this is how he he went out and why don't I know about him why why haven't most of his famous friends and powerful friends spoken about this guy He's been gone for how many years now? Was it 18 years? As creative, you know, who has been in that that boat, you know, it's a whole nother vibe. It's a whole nother vibe if, if you're creative and you're top of the world. But when you are uh, unseen and unfelt, bad for you. The experience that we have in this country and people descendants of Africa, a lot of my stories are cry, right? So, so some things that I have not experienced, but they're, they're stories that I I, um, I see in the world and that we all see in the world, but I have a different interpretation of it. If I had a, a short silent film called La Brega you can translate that to like the struggle and that story is about a police shooting and the person did indeed have a gun a lot of times we write write it off like he had a gun alright cool we're not gonna get mad about that one you know but with this story I wanted to show like why he had the gun and how his day didn't start like that and how he was afraid himself and you know so I like to just really cry out for those who can't cry out Act 2 The Road What's your passion? I love to dance. Is that cool to say that? 
<laughs> dancing is that cool i like dancing yeah. and running using my happy feet comedy those are the things that that uh make me the happiest comedy can make me turn my frown upside down stand-up comedy but like trying your hand at stand-up or watching watching stand-up you know at this point in time watching stand-up comedy i did want to try my hand a few years ago but that didn't work well i didn't try but it still didn't work dancing is where i feel the most free yeah, so pa- passing the dancing and, and my passion is uh is liberation and and those through the the recent years being tied up with this film and also taking time for family and taking time, you know, to me and me enjoying some of the resources that I've earned for the people, you know, so all that. How do you show up in these different kinds of public spaces that you traverse as an African descended man? Do you, do you ever feel like Afri- as an African descended person that that goes up contradicts or is something that um, goes alongside with being also Afro-Latino. Because there's this interesting sort of mix, I think, for different people that I speak to, and they talk about their experiences. And that's almost a dichotomy, that they have to almost choose to be one or the other. Some people find ways in which the two are meshed together as, as an important part of their identities. Having ancestry and parentage from Panama and Guyana, and then also being U.S. born from Brooklyn. Let's do an example. So my NYC premiere was at Big Apple, but actually I premiered in in, uh, in Gary, Indiana, went to London, and Minneapolis. The NYC premiere, I, I wore this. It's not a dashiki, but I wore this dope African. It was like a, a I'm African, I'm African uh, shirt. Physically, when I come, I do come. Let you know, hey, just you, I know who I am now. The same, and my name arrives before I do. I do have an African name, but you know, that's not as much as a political statement as it was 20, 30 years ago. But the name Victoria is a political statement. So my name arrives first, right? My last name arrives next. They cost it, right? So now when I when I use the, the term Afro-Latino or Afro-Latinx, I want to be clear, it's not about bloodline. I'm talking about uh heritage, cultural norms and folkways and mores as as they say. But it ain't about, you know, having uh the Spaniard blood in me. It's more so about my family is recently from where they speak Spanish at and they struggle is against people who do have that more observable Spaniard blood in them and who do have the, the blood of the indigenous in them. We force a duality, right? Because when you're Panamanian, you're you're in the bottom of the rung in that world. Right, yeah, Dominicans and Panamanians because you know we, we are so, and, and I mean Afro Panamanians to be clear. Because if you go to Panama, it's like Puerto Rico. So people have this conception that um, when you are uh, go to Panama, everybody black. Not the case. There's a struggle out there in Panama, and with Guyana. This is the weirdest thing. You say, oh, she was Guyanese. They really mean like Indian or what the derogatory term is coolie. It's like, nah, that ain't what was out over there, but that is the ruling class over there. And so it's a very interesting place to be from as well. Um, one time I was there and people had hats that said 100% Negro on it. And this is just like a decade ago because one, they're kind of behind on the terminology. And two, being part Indian is looked down upon. Panama, you think it's all black. Guyana, you think it's all Indian. This is weird, right? So you have both of those countries. People are yearning for you to understand like, nah, like it's different than being subjects of the English, which is pretty much all that is. You were Portuguese, you know, subjects uh, enslaved you. Maybe Spanish ones enslaved you. It, all of this. But growing, growing up, that dual consciousness is uh, really when you hate the word African and you hate having dark skin, you know, because I have dark skin and you hate being black, whether you know it or not. You want to be like, I ain't regular black. My, my aunt Dolores is, looks like this and you know look I have reddish undertone and you know so there was a, a thing where as opposed to let's say like a person who presents as uh 
Latino or Latinx, where they have to maybe search deeper to acknowledge their African roots. Unlike most Caribbean countries, we are cut off because a lot of Afro-Panamanians came from somewhere else, right? They came from Jamaica, came from Barbados or whatever, right? And people like my grandfather, my grandfather left at 18 years old from, from Jamaica. That was it, cut off, right? And a lot of people who moved to Panama were cut off from wherever they were from. So the next generation, all they know is, oh, we speak Spanish over here. Panama, it, it was uh, made so Spanish last name. If not, they have a Spanish first name. This is what we're doing over here. You're going to see a lot of Jose Henry's and a whole lot of, you know, because, you know, you they may had to have a Spanish last name to, to survive. And so what happens then when grandpa dies and you're cut off from whatever little 18-year-old knowledge grandpa had in Jamaica, now you're cut off. Now you're here in this land, right? You're here in this land and you no longer know how to make bakes or whatever. Now you make something that's kind of like a hybrid. But then you have the children are now learning Spanish and don't speak that much English at home. Even if grandma and or mommy and daddy is alive, there's a, a cultural divide because not all of the grandma parents really spoke that good Spanish and some of them could but didn't want to because they wanted to retain certain things now all this is just getting back to Barbados this ain't talking about Africa forget about Africa these are the the differences I guess why I, I always have in my bio that my family is from this particular heritage not because I think I'm better but it's because it's like we all have different pain we all have different foods that come from the same place. And it's just like saying, hey, this is my piece of the puzzle. What's your piece of the puzzle? You know, so we can we can come together and fit. And being born in Brooklyn, I still feel like I'm a Caribbean man, as much as I feel like I'm an African man. Just how if you are, have, you have Panamanian ancestry, you don't speak Spanish, that's, you're shamed for not speaking that, that language. You can be Guyanese or be Jamaican in Brooklyn and not speak what they call Patois, and you're shamed, right? So there is still a lot of shame that's involved with the first generation and the second generation generation Americans from the Caribbean because no one's shaming you for not being African now. No one's saying, you know, oh, don't you know about the Fulani tribe? Don't you know about Grenada? You don't speak the Spice Island? They don't care about, you know, anything about Ghana. This is like, you better know this colony right here. You know, so it's very interesting. Someone told me recently about how uh, uh, the Caribbean people only want to be you know, quote-unquote African-American when it's time to take their benefits. Oh, your benefits? Are you? Oh, because Civil Rights Act started in this year and a lot of, lot of y'all didn't come until this year and it's like oh so you you really like make american great again too so it, it, it's interesting you know to be treated like how white men treat us you know my first film called dirty hearts is a short film and i, I wanted to represent the panamanian diaspora so i had people of different complexions and hair textures in that film and it's all panamanian themed film i did a film called la Prega, right and, and i had like some tribal some tribal drums and with some chanting in spanish and indigenous language more towards the santeria side than the yoruba side if that makes sense and i called it a spanish thing and i had the main character was you know a dominican i did have funk because I my first film did end up in a, in a festival called the Latino Short Film Festival. And, you know, I, I came through and they were like, huh, what, what? And there was one woman who had a film that was set in Panama. She was Panamanian. She was a mestizo. And she did a film about a, a, a brother with, with, with locks, with dreads in, in, the, uh, in the jungle. And it was cool, you know. But then her Q&A, she said the Afro-Caribbeans and the Panamanians. It was like, well, hold up. Everybody passport or whatever say that we Panamanian too so why are you separated so you know it, it still exists at the end of the day you know we African you being able to look to your ancestry and to pay homage 
to the kind of people and their experiences, whether they are still back in these countries or what happened to them or their descendants in the U.S., for example. How is it that people experience, you know, different experiences around their identities as it relates to their gender, around their ethnicity, their race? You take that up and attempt to also bridge that geographic divide, but you attend to it in your film, whether it's these shorts. So you have a limited amount of time to contend with a lot of different issues <laughs> for your for your viewers, but it's almost right. like a taste test or brief mm. of what you know what the greater conversation is and, and could be problematic in people's misunderstandings around the input of African descendants that have come from the Caribbean to the U.S. is that. If you really know one's history, the people who were enslaved, there are folks that came to the U.S. from the Caribbean well before the civil rights legislation of the mid-20th century. You had people, you you know, you have people who that, I mean, if you want to just take the arts, for example, folks that participated and contributed to a lot of the political scene, contributed to the arts around, say, during the time of the Harlem Renaissance. Mm -hmm. Many of them are first and second generation Caribbean immigrants themselves. Mm-hmm. And so there was a lot of entanglements that occurred between these different groups of people here in this land because it was about advancing the, the Africans' experience in the United States. Which is, comes from Gar- Garvey, right? So Garvey was straight out of Jamaica and he was he's like the guy. Speaks to the fact that this is about still setting up divisive ways to break apart the community as a form mm-hmm. of a distraction that takes away from the liberation movement. Because if you have a fighting over well, who gets to claim and take up space in these places, mm-hmm. then you're distracted from the bigger system that's there set to destroy you and your community. Because right. you're so busy like, you know, it doesn't make much sense. I wanted to ask you, in terms of the lessons that you've learned along the way, along this path, are there particular failures or opportunities that you experienced and how did you turn things around? To be proud, say my name, stand up tall, lift my head up high, and that being small doesn't serve anybody. And there's the opposite. So I, I've, I just learned that just don't don't play small. And if I were playing small, I used to put people's names on things. I used to put other people's names on my things because I thought that their name would take things further than my name. So I've learned that to just to, uh, to build my esteem. What, what do you mean by that? Let's say if I did a musical project, if not collabing, if I did something, I would do what I had to do to get someone's name put on that as a producer of that and put me as something totally something totally subservient. So if it was something that's basically as a mixtape, I did the mixtape, right? But then it's like, okay, well, I might pay someone else to put their name on the mixtape and then in the back in small letters, you might see my name as like an assistant or something weird because I thought that it was it was uh, noble for me to take a back seat. It would, it would be like it would be like doing it and then and telling Spike, well, just do this one, two, three, so you got, so we can say you did it because we were taught not to shine. I was taught not to shine. I was taught that shining was uh, was unsafe, and if you were going to shine, you you got to deal with certain repercussions for shining. And I was also taught, like, who are you to shine? Who you think you're going to shine? You ain't going to shine. So what I've learned to do is shine. I think the combo we're having, I couldn't have had this combo 10 years ago. That, and when you do that, the most physical material thing that I've learned is don't put people in position if they don't deserve that position, right? You could love them. You could want the best for them. Don't put them in position. You know, you are enough to attract 
people who are in the right path for that. Empowering someone is good, but not when it comes with the destruction of what, you, what you're trying to do. Because when, when, you, when you're black and poor, it's like, all right, well, you can be the cook, you can do that, mama could do that. Like, nah, you don't got to do that. Because we have a lot of people in our community that are qualified. You know, we don't, have, yeah, we don't have to be just your best friend and your family. I mean, because it, it hardly ever works. So you talked about the fact that you have that, you know, for yourself personally, and correct me if I'm overstepping, but you know, almost this fear of succeeding for you to be able to place, mm-hmm. you know, the kudos to other folks to say, okay, well, you can take the credit for this. Right. At the same time, that fear of succeeding for you has also made you feel uncomfortable about the fact that, hey, I've been productive in doing all this stuff, whether it's in music and other places, but then I'm not getting the credit. But at the mm-hmm. same time, you can't get credit for something if no one's able to attribute it because you're passing off the credit to someone else to take. At the same mm-hmm. time, you also talk about the fact that, you know, being taught not to shine. I think it's just just when you have folks that have been systematically oppressed for so long and that sometimes not, you know, not all attention is good attention, mm-hmm. that it could be life or death. But that places us in a position where we can't really talk with pride about the things that we're doing that are quite positive. You're talking about trusting folks mm-hmm. and not everyone belongs on the same journey with you. you can, look, there's a bandwagon and y'all all need to get on the bandwagon because it's moving, but you just can't drive it. You just can't do nothing. Just sit down there and be happy that you know me. And, and that's part and, and that's part of the journey. I, you know, and I mean that for real, for real. It sounds it sounds nuts, but nice. But I have a friend. I have a friend. I thought that he felt the way about me, but he he didn't. He said that he points to me and, and tells his son, "Not all daddy's friends are mechanics." And I was like, "Damn, all right. Well, I, I wear that, and it, it gave me pride." But I had a fear. I've had a fear of failure for a lot longer than I had a fear of success. My fear of success is about '07 is when I got the fear of success. It was a, a real led to a real place. It was. It was like. If I get an 85 inch television screen, I'm gonna put that box at, you know, because you you can. I deserve to watch that screen to do whatever I do on my on my TV. But then you see that big old box outside. What happens then, you know? So it's it's a fear of what the success bring to me, you know, when I'm in a certain environment. Well, you know, the last few years work, but last year's work meaning that I'm I'm good. I'm I'm trying to be as successful as I can, as visible as I can. But it was a, a hard journey. I think the thing that rocked me the most after being cured of it was when Nipsey got murdered. That made me feel incredibly unsafe. And here you have a person who I had been following since 09 and, and his music did help me through a lot of tough times. And he was a great artist, great in his immediate community. He's a pure guy. And then he gets murdered being in his community where he's doing great things. It was like, whoa, you know, and this guy, through his music, he was telling me personally, hey, you can do this. You know, you can leave this and that behind, feel safe and you feel inspired. And then someone like that gets snuffed out. It's like, whoa. So can I still go back to Flatbush, you know, and and be good? And they all appreciate that. Can I show my face? Can I, you know, bear my past? The uplifting and positive side of fear is that, man, I don't know what's going to happen. I was in London for my film a few weeks ago. I can't, I've been in London like three times, but this time it's like, I don't know what it's even going to look like, you know? And so that's the positive fear. I can talk to people my age, younger, older who do have dreams and and do come from a similar uh, background and let them know like it's okay the water is fine act three where we land so what are you most excited about? Yeah, I'm excited about, and I'm proud that I have a film coming out on HBO. Um, I'm a producer of a film called Yusef Hawkins, Storm Over Brooklyn. And Yusef was a 
a child that was murdered in 1989 on August 23rd. I am a producer of that film directed by Mutali Muhammad, who is a, um, a great director. And his first film was about his grandmother, Ruby D, because he's Ruby and Ozzy's grandson. And he's he's super dope. I, so I found him for the project. I'm the first producer on that project. I'm very proud of that. My name is going to be on this big HBO thing. The documentary, HBO is still the gold standard. I'm proud to be working on LA Gold Rush with um, Habiba Sindor, as you said earlier is Green Madhu Jabbar's daughter, one of his daughters. I'm just proud that I was tapped for that. I'm proud to be working on the script with that. Kareem and other Lakers are attached to that. AC Green, DePaul Gasol. So that's, that's really cool. I, I've, I've just come from a very traumatic past couple of years. Two really dark stories with the Yusef Hawkins film and Thinking for Walt right. Naveen. Very, 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 very dark stuff. And if you and the listeners can't tell, you know, I put my foot, I put everything into whatever I'm doing. And that, you know, with my, my mother dying of cancer, the past two of those those four years so you'll see in both of the films a lot of a lot of that is in my mother's house because i was cold caregiver mm-hmm. so a lot of that was in my mother's house a lot of editing was at her hospital room so i'm very proud of those things because those are things that she knew these things were going on i'm apprehensive about the things that she did not know about those things made me a little bit sad because it's like well dad this is something that she had no idea about so it's like me coming into manhood for the first time in the world by myself physically speaking and taking on these great tasks and being proud of that and knowing that that she would be proud of me. So, but I am very proud. I'm very happy. I think when I start getting paid, I'm going to be excited. Because you know, I get paid a little bit. You know, so. You got to speak it. As, as a final point, if there are any particular audience takeaways that you want to leave our listeners with that might inspire them on their journey, feel free to share some. That thing that you really want to do, do that thing. Don't worry about money. You don't need that much money to do it. You don't need any money to do it. You just need people power. My film was done for almost nothing 30k over four years nothing for a film go ahead and do it if it if it really is a passion of yours it'll never be the right time just go ahead and do that and people will applaud the fact that you are doing anything and that's just gonna power you to do more the next thing is vision board do a vision board vision boards are real i ride my vision board on my passenger seat me and my vision board be riding you know when i come into the city I see all the time. Do your vision board. Don't make it um, abstract. Don't put like win or, you know, breathe. I mean, you know, I ain't clear what to do, but you better have make it very concrete because, you know, we don't understand that, you know, you got to see it in order to achieve it. If, if you don't see it, you're just going to be basically beholden to what other folks see, you know, what, what their dreams have for you. There you have it. The journey isn't over, but this episode is. Until next time, peace.